Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. I'm Sana Shahimi, Director of Policy and Advocacy for Prevention Institute, and I'm really happy to welcome Isha Wera Singha, who is a Senior Policy Analyst on the Youth Team at the Center for Law and Social Policy, or CLASP. Our discussion today is about supporting mental health and well-being for communities of color. We're going to examine this very critical issue, both as part of what is needed for an equitable COVID-19 recovery, and also through the lens of the individual, community, and intergenerational trauma inflicted through state violence and extremist violence that have taken the lives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Rayshard Brooks, to name just a few of far too many names. And with that, it's a pleasure to welcome you today, Isha. Thank you, Sana. I'm very happy to be here. So to begin, Isha, what does it mean for CLASP to approach mental health and well-being through a health equity and racial justice lens? We describe CLASP. So CLASP is the Center of Law and Social Policy, and we're an anti-poverty organization. So our mission is centered around providing policy and system solutions for people who are living in poverty and those who don't have the supports that others have. So through that, we recognize the impacts that policies through history have made on communities of color. And that could be from redlining to exclusionary immigration policies to the struggle for true tribal sovereignty. And with that, we ensure that our lens is not only inclusive of, but is centered around racial equity and those who are closest to the issues. So our mental health work is cross-cutting. We have six policy teams and two cross-cutting teams and criminal justice and mental health are our cross-cutting teams. And by that, I mean our mental health work is looking at uh, mental health, not only from a public health perspective, although that's my background, but we're thinking about how barriers to economic mobility, um, and that's through job access and security, or lack of access to paid sick and family leave, or fair scheduling, or safety in schools, immigration status, access to federal supports like SNAP and Medicaid, and it, along with how you're perceived as a person of color in this country, all contribute to one's mental health and well being. So, An example of that is when you're struggling to make ends meet and you feel like the systems, and by systems, I mean the medical system, the housing system, local infrastructure, educational system. If you feel like systems are against you and that they're not recognizing you and you feel like you're fighting battles day after day after day, whether it be by making sure you get home safe from walking from school to home or making sure your kids have enough to eat or trying to juggle childcare and working. All of this contributes to one's well-being and uh, it slowly increases stress. Then you add the layers of racism and discrimination and the lack of resources in communities with primary low-income households and things get pretty complex to tease out. 
So more recently, the added traumas of COVID-19 and the national and global acknowledgement and reckoning of racial violence against African-American communities are now at the forefront, and we're figuring out how to move forward as a country. Therefore, mental health and well-being often becomes pretty low on the priority list, and yet it's everything. So at CLASP, we talk about the importance of recognizing historical and cultural trauma in communities, which means trauma that has been experienced either in the past or in the present, um, but from decades and centuries of injustice. So this, of course, looks different depending on the community. And when I say, quote unquote, community, I don't mean necessarily a racial ethnic group, but perhaps a racial and ethnic group in a specific region. So, for example, the experiences of those Pacific Islanders from the Marshall, Mariana, and Palau Islands who are living in Hawaii and their generational experiences of trauma from World War II, or Japanese Americans living in San Francisco or LA and their generational trauma from Japanese incarceration, or African Americans living in the South and their traumas of slavery, racial violence and lynchings, the Great Migration and systemic oppression, or Alaska Native tribes like the Yupik people who've had to relocate after centuries because of climate change created by worldwide negligence, or Arab American immigrants in Michigan who have seen their communities terrorized because of suspicion of Muslim American populations after 9-11, or Guatemalan immigrants in detention centers fleeing unsafe conditions created by colonialization and foreign influence in the 80s. Or even my community, I come from the Sri Lankan community and uh, my community has experienced civil war for 30 years and is still dealing with the repercussions today. And so the list goes on. And right now it's central when thinking about black communities are sustaining their mental health and well-being after the recent police shootings and violence on black lives, like you mentioned, Sana, in the top of the podcast, uh, and black lives such as Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, and the list goes on. And then all of the black women who have been killed by police violence who aren't getting the same attention. All of this is causing re-traumatization and calling for healing spaces and healing justice. But through all of this, I would also be remiss in not stating that there's much resilience and power in communities of those living in poverty, and particularly in communities of color, which has been caused not only by culture, but because often communities have to focus on strength. Isha, how do policies that may not be immediately thought of as connected to mental health and well-being, like environmental regulations or economic security, in fact, support equitable mental health and well-being? You know, as our society is based in capitalism, it's necessary to feel financially stable in order to maintain a livelihood, ensure your family has food to eat or the food that you want to eat to be able to buy the things you want to. And the flip side of that is not being able to have enough money to buy what you want and to have to worry about food being on the table or to even worry about being able to buy quote unquote healthy food. And all of this contributes to stress and well-being. So of course I'm kind of in oversimplifying things right now because there's a lot I could say about all of that inc including our perceptions of what means that we've quote unquote made it. But I'll give you an example of how um, 
priorities have had to shift in the recent months and how this looks different for um, populations living in poverty. So we have an advisory board of 17 members that help to guide our mental health work, and they all consist of experts who work nationally and locally and include voices of those with lived experience. And one of our advisory board members, um, her name's Clelly Shute. She's based in Detroit, and she runs an organization called Raw Uncut Women, and that organization supports women of color and their mental health, including mothers who have experienced perinatal and postnatal depression. And she told me that she had to stop her general operations of working in mental health and focus groups and um, support groups because so many of those women whom she is working with needed help for basic needs like SNAP and also temporary relief for basic services, including rent. And um, so many of the women that she works with were also having issues accessing broadband services. So the women she was working with were trying to get relief from unemployment and essential workers were trying to get health care while being able to sustain their jobs. And on top of that, they were stressing about all of that. And then there's the stress of having to take public transportation because they had to, but there was a pandemic happening. But that being said, Chloe had mentioned to me this point I made earlier about resilience. So her community in Detroit was lending a hand to help each other out because they knew um, so many were dealing with a lot. And at the time, she told me that Amazon Fulfillment in Michigan was working with local community-based organizations to make sure that community members got what they needed. Your question about environmental regulations could be an example of how communities living in poverty who don't have um, organizers living in their community um, may feel like they don't have political power. So if community members are impacted by change standards of, for example, how much cyanide can be in the water, um, which was changed by the Environmental Protection Agency, for example, people may feel like policymakers don't care about them. And that leads to helplessness and stress, and then sometimes hopelessness. And then this, again, all of this stresses to me why mental health can't be looked only as a condition or a diagnosis, but it's a result of many factors and many policies in the present and um, looking back. As you've already mentioned, there's incredible momentum right now to really reimagine community safety, and in particular, using safety in Black communities as the barometer for change. And these are ongoing conversations that include divesting from law enforcement and investing in what communities need to experience health, safety, and well-being. Isha, can you tell us more about what these types of community investments look like from CLASP's perspective? We at CLASP have really been talking for years about divestments from law enforcement for, um, through our justice work. And um, my colleagues, Keisha Bird, Dewey Pham, and our partner, Shay Harris, wrote a couple of papers, but their most recent paper is called Recollecting, Realizing, and Reimagining Justice. And that 
uh, report talks about our framework in doing so, um, which is focused in anti-racism. But just in terms of what we've been talking about so far, um, my colleague, Dr. Nia West-Bay, she wrote a few reports with our partners, Marlene Mendoza and Stephanie Flores, on supports that young adults need. And that includes thinking about healing spaces and opportunities for peer support specialists. Then there's this idea of um, the framework called healing justice, which I'm sure many have heard about. And that framework is thinking about how to better serve healers while uplifting mental health practices that work for people of color. Healing justice, the idea of it was um, led by one of class mental health advisory board members, Kara Page, and the Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective. And they developed this almost a decade ago. Um, and they were, because there was a real need in the South of healers and organizers to have a space to respond to the trauma and crisis developing there. And this is something that will not seem foreign to what providers are experiencing today or even the public. Um, there's a lot of burnout. There's a, there is a, a there was a recognition and there continues to be a recognition of the loss of healing traditions and the stigmatization or isolation of healers. Um, and also this um, divide between what communities of color need in this moment and what is being offered through systems. So supports like Healing Justice, um, which is adapted for whatever community that uses the principle, recognizes those who have experienced and are experiencing trauma and centers their expertise and could be a really prominent and available solution for the divestment of funds from law enforcement. So I think if investments can be sure to use solutions like those brought from community, they're gonna be able to not only help the community together, but that includes those who are experiencing the pain without the supports and also those who are supporting community. Can you share more about how this approach of centering lived experience and leadership of young people is leading to policy solutions and strategies that might otherwise be overlooked? Something that is central to our work at our, our youth team at CLASP is this recognition uh, that those who are experiencing or have experienced poverty and barriers to access need to be part of the discussions to provide solutions. So uh, we're really proud of the Behind the Asterisk report, which was written by my colleagues Nia and Marlene. And the report before that was the go-throughs to get-through paper. And um, it both provided policy solutions based on speaking with young people from very different backgrounds, whether they lived in a rural or urban setting, whether they came from uh, different communities, whether it was a Black community, Indigenous community, Pacific Islander community, Asian American, Latinx, white, or those who experience homelessness. In terms of solutions that young people brought forward that we really felt like we needed to highlight, 
those included really thinking about um, policy solutions from an asset asset based frame. So rather than thinking about mental health um, through a deficit based lens and thinking about diagnosis, the diagnosis of someone's depressed or someone is feeling anxious, really thinking about wellness and prevention and providing open spaces for young people to be able to talk to one another and to talk to peers and especially peer specialists about the challenges that they're experiencing, but not couching it into into saying that it is a conversation, quote unquote, about mental health. Another thing um, that we learned through these focus groups is that young people are often disillusioned with traditional medic medical care and really appreciate community-based care. And I'm sure that is not surprising to, to so many. So we need to really think about solutions that are promoting community-based care um, without trying to fit a square peg in a round hole in trying to modify the current medical system and making it work for these young people. Another thing that they had mentioned was the the importance of healing spaces, especially those that incorporate cultural healing practices and talking about how important these healing spaces are when confronting cultural and historical trauma. So all of those things are solutions that we try to uh, incorporate when we're in different policy sp spaces that maybe these young people that we spoke with may not be able to be in. And uh, as I mentioned, it's really a very central part of our work because you can't really be able to provide solutions unless you're talking to those who are experiencing um, the barriers and, and the issues themselves. I know that CLASP is also really focused on reframing mental health and reimagining what mental health systems could and should look like. Can you tell us more about these efforts, including your Reframe Mental Health campaign, which launched during Mental Health Awareness Month, which was in May? Yeah, sure. And I, I really feel that this Reframe Mental Health campaign came at a good time. It is something that we've been thinking about since at least when I started at CLASP um, two and a half years ago, and if not before that. And I also think that it's a real moment right now when we are having a national reckoning to really think about what supports we all need. So I need to acknowledge again that we all need to recognize that communities know the way that they need to heal best. And whether it's through talking to community leaders or someone in the community who has been through the same experiences or someone who speaks the same language, whether literally or figuratively, and that could be through cultural healers or through therapists who practice holistically and acknowledge where client, clients are coming from or through talking through one's experiences in groups. All of these things, and maybe more that we don't know about at this moment, are very important to uplift. And along with that is the recognition that spaces need to be inclusive. And that, again, starts with speaking with communities and listening and making sure that those voices 
who may not always be at the forefront, whether it's the disability community or the LGBTQ community, um, and particularly the trans community, uh, making sure that they have a voice, making sure that those who are limited English proficient um, have interpreters or translators to, to be able to weigh into the conversation, or that you have separate listening groups for um, those who are limited English proficient and speak the same language. Another thing that we really talk about when thinking about this reframing mental health piece is that our medical system in the United States and our mental health system is based in a Western model, and it's based in white supremacy. Therapists and practitioners some of them may recognize this Western model and they may move outside the traditional Western treatment and therapy practices. But really, in order to access those services, often you need to pay out of pocket or you need to have really good health insurance. So the question is, you know, for those who are on Medicaid or those who don't have insurance, or those who don't have the ability to pay, even if they are um, on Medicaid, what supports do they have? We really have to take this moment and really think about what mental health and behavioral health supports are needed for um, these communities that are really hurting. And another strong area of focus for CLASP is emphasizing non-traditional spaces for mental health, which you've mentioned a few times in your previous answers. Can you tell us more about what these spaces can look like and their importance in advancing health equity and racial justice and what needs to be done to ensure that more communities of color have access to these spaces? With non-traditional spaces, some areas that we think about, especially for young people, we think about workforce development agencies, for example, where young people will go for job training or to find jobs, um, youth development centers, community centers, or broadly when you're thinking about education, of course, you're making sure that there are safe spaces and that mental health supports are meeting people where they're at. And we also do work in maternal mental health, um, and we try to think about creative ways that mental health support or wellness support could be provided. And this could look like having peer groups and settings that can be easier to access. It could be having a one-on-one conversation with a peer support specialist or another mental health professional in a supermarket. We've heard about instances where that's worked for people too. Again, it's really meeting people where they are and it's also really up to communities to really speak up and define what they feel is the most appropriate in terms of support to make sure that they're also inclusive and judgment-free. As we record this, Congress has passed four bills as part of the federal response to COVID-19. And right now, efforts are stalled on a much-needed fifth bill in the Senate after the HEROES Act passed in the House. Isha, how have the mental health and well-being needs of communities of color been addressed thus far 
through the federal COVID-19 response. And what are you looking for? Should there be a next phase and beyond this immediate public health crisis? So there was in the first CARES Act, there was some money um, directed to SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And then in this most recent HEROES Act, there was a lot of money directed to SAMHSA, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, NIMH, um, the National Institute for Mental Health, and FEMA. But when thinking about what is really helping communities of color, I think to some extent, the money that's directed to SAMHSA's block grant program. So there was money directed to the substance abuse treatment and block grant and the community mental health services block grant. And those block grant programs can be really beneficial, but the issue lies in community-based organizations who don't have the capacity to apply, especially when thinking about current crises with the COVID-19 crisis and work capacity, um, and then the ability to apply to thinking about federal grants. And then another limitation is also reporting requirements. The HEROES Act also had $150 million allocated to tribes and tribal providers and urban Indian health organizations, but those are all directed towards behavioral health. As to how much is really needed is unknown. With disproportionate increases in cases in COVID-19 in Native populations as well. And then on top of that, we don't know what the Senate is going to take up from the HEROES Act, if anything at all. So... When thinking about communities of color, supports that are needed, especially when thinking about COVID-19, things that we've been thinking about are um, making sure that community health workers, doulas, and peer support specialists are considered essential workers. And that is for many reasons, um, so that they are able to, for example, enter medical treatment facilities when they may not be able to, especially when the restrictions were more in place at the beginning of the pandemic. But it's also in terms of reimbursement for um, what is, quote unquote, a qualified health provider and to make sure that they get adequate PPE. So some of this is in HEROES for um, CHWs, doulas, and peer support specialists um, to make sure that some emergency funds go to them. But again, whether that's going to be passed by the Senate and what is going to happen when you're thinking down the line is yet to be determined. Another thing that we've been thinking about is the sustainability of telehealth and also with these relaxed restrictions in telehealth, what does that mean for communities living in low-income households and their access to broadband? I mentioned Kelly's example in Detroit a little bit earlier, and that goes for so many communities who may not have access to the internet or access to phones or access to enough data. We've heard of some um, health plans who have had at least a temporary expansion of data. And one of the Medicaid care organizations that's based in DC is doing that. But um, another concern is how long this is going to be sustained. 
Something I've been thinking a lot about is without having money being directed through federal agencies, how else can community-based organizations get funds and perhaps public-private partnerships could be an avenue to do that, to make sure that communities are sustained and at least have the supports that they need for long-term recovery and rebuilding so that they are able to create their own healing spaces or whatever makes sense for them. And then we always think about workforce agencies and because we do a lot of work with workforce agencies um, through our youth team's work and our partners consistently tell us uh, the importance of providing mental health services, but they don't often have the capacity to do so, whether because of training or because of funding. So that would be something to recommend in a future package as well. And then finally, I'll just say um, the importance of emergency response, and especially in thinking through this moment of divestment, what is at the core of everything is trust. And there has been a real lack of trust that a lot of communities of color face in many aspects, but in the medical system for sure, um, and also in emergency response. So how do we rebuild by thinking about building trust with the right people, whether it be public health professionals or mental health professionals who can be involved in emergency response rather than the police being the first to to be called. Could you highlight some specific actions that our listeners might be able to take at this time to support some of the efforts that you've been talking about? I really think it's important to pay attention to whether your policymakers, whether on a local front or um, those who are in DC, whether they really understand this importance of mental health and well-being. Again, they need to understand that dedicated funding for mental and behavioral health has to be nuanced, not just put in buckets of funds for federal agencies because of the trickle-down effect often doesn't reach the communities it needs to. And communities need to be able to craft their own solutions um, and have the funds to be able to do so. I think it's also, of course, always important to speak up about the importance of supporting mental health for everyone um, and for advocates to ask for state funding that supports peer support specialists and healing spaces. At the moment at CLASP and our mental health team, we're um, developing our legislative principles and, and we should have them finalized by mid, the midsummer um, and we're happy to share them when they're finalized. And those principles outline what we think is essential in providing true quality care in mental and behavioral health. In terms of other resources, I mentioned the Recollecting, Realizing, and Reimagining Justice a report, Go Throughs to Get Through, and we spoke about the behind the asterisk report. But I'd also point those who are interested to see how we see policies contributing to mental health crises to a, a report I wrote with my former colleagues, Yesenia Jimenez and Bruce Wilson called Between the Lines, um, which focuses on the opioid overdose epidemic and race and what 
policies got us to where we are today and what is missing from the conversation? Before we bring this conversation to a close, Isha, what advice do you have for advocates in this moment? I keep saying that this is a really trying time. And we have to recognize what we can do to help and support our collective community members who are grieving while fighting alongside them. I have a quote on my desk that a friend of mine gave me years ago, um, which will not be surprising to many of you, but it's an Audre Lorde quote that says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. I think that is not meant to be taken point blank for many of us, but that we must step up right now when we hear our colleagues and friends in the black community who are tired of fighting and step up when our colleagues and friends in the indigenous, Asian American, Pacific Islander, Latinx, and those who identify as Muslim American are tired of speaking up and fighting and step back when we need to give ourselves some space and time for healing, and also to give ourselves some grace, especially when things are so tiring right now. But we need to be here for each other, um, because that's the only way we're going to move forward and the only way we're going to survive. Isha, thank you so much for your insights, your perseverance, and your leadership. It was really, really great to do this with you. And to all of you listening who are engaging in the protests against structural racism and police violence across the country, I wanted to say that we are grateful for your activism and vision and hope that you stay safe, stay healthy, and stay connected during these difficult times. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T. 